How should we deal with historic injustice? A little while ago on The Curious Task, I spoke with Jason Lee Bias. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jason Lee Bias. Jason is a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Michigan. His work typically focuses on punishment and its alternatives, rights theory, and moral repair. He is also a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. I recommend that people check out his and other essays there as well. Jason recently contributed a chapter on Rectification and Historic Injustice for the Rutledge Companion to Libertarianism, and that paper will actually form the basis of most of our conversation today. Jason, welcome to The Curious Task. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you on. So Jason, we base each of our episodes around a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how should we deal with historic injustice? And that's a great opportunity really for us to essentially do a summary tour on what we can say is sort of like the current libertarian discourse surrounding rectifying historic injustices. And we can put them on the table for people to learn about and and consider the uh, aforementioned paper is the one will be uh, by you is the one we'll be mostly exploring today. So, so let's actually start with this point here. Um, your paper divides time on sort of like reparations on the one hand and then property and land towards the end. So let's talk about mm-hmm. reparations more specifically first. One thing I found interesting is that you said there's sort of like two arguments in the libertarian context that you at least feel are non-starters and, and so do other people. And that that's on the one hand, the appeal to counterfactual thought uh, that the descendants of direct victims would be better off if the injustice had not occurred. And on the other mm-hmm. hand, you said another, another non-starter is like the sort of claim that privileged party have privileged parties to the injustice were sort of enriched by the historic injustice. So I actually want right. to explore both. So on the first hand, why do you think it's a non-starter to appeal to the idea that the descent quote, the descendants of direct victims would be better off had the injustice not occurred? Yeah. So this one is kind of less specific to libertarians in terms of the worry. Um, It's a huge thing in kind of the reparations literature uh, that there's kind of basically a metaphysical worry with uh, saying that not just in reparations cases, but in any case that someone can be harmed uh, by something that has, that might possibly affect uh, whether or not they even exist in the first place. Uh, and it's import- important to get this right because it can be very easy to misunderstand this, this argument. Uh, so the basic idea, so this is called the non-identity problem, and that'll be clear to why in a second. Um, the basic idea is that if we're saying that uh, someone is harmed in virtue of the fact that counterfactually speaking, like had this thing not happened, they'd be better off, okay, then we need to have some kind of comparison. Uh, We need to have the counterfactual in mind, the counterfactual in which this thing didn't happen and they're better off. And that's really easy in most cases. Like if I take your wallet, uh, then like it's really easy to talk about the counterfactual where you still have your wallet. And so the fact that me taking your wallet makes you worse off than that counterfactual uh, means you're worse off in virtue of me taking your, your wallet. That all seems fine as long as uh, the person is alive at the time of the harm. However, uh, if it's even possibly the case that 
had the harm not occurred, they would not even exist, then you can't make that same assessment. And the reason for that is, is that, again, think about it in terms of counterfactuals that uh, if, say, if I had uh, not mugged your parents, for example, before you were born, that long story short, uh, you would not exist. Suppose that's the case. And suppose that this mugging like impoverished your family and it definitely uh, the living under those circumstances is bad for you and all that. However, we can't say that uh, the way in which I've harmed you by um, by mugging your parents is that you uh, would be counterfactually better off because, of course, there is no counterfactual where I didn't mug your parents and you still exist. And similarly, the thought is uh, that there is no counterfactual where, for example, uh, American slavery occurred and many of the direct descendants of slaves uh, still exist. And it's really important to get this right because it can sound like it's saying, oh, therefore it's good for you that this injustice occurred or that you should be grateful for it. That is not what the argument is saying. The argument is saying that uh, you also can't, it would also actually tell against someone who was trying to make that kind of claim. Sometimes uh, certain kinds of uh, people on the right will make this sort of claim that people should be grateful for uh, colonialism, so on and so forth. But it actually says you also can't make that claim because it's saying there is literally no, uh, you can't say that you're be- worse off or better off than the world where this didn't occur because you just don't exist in that world. Right. And so for that reason, pretty much everybody in the reparations literature uh, often tries to find a way of making an argument for reparations that doesn't require um the the premise that counterfactually uh, people uh, you would be better off had this not occurred since it has this very thorny metaphysical problem and it's like a huge detour that a lot of people just don't want to go down and so and I I kind of join the that thought thought in thinking like it's better there there are arguments that we can think of that don't rely on that premise and so it's better to like just kind of sidestep those metaphysical worries and uh, focus on the more direct moral questions. In in other words, then whether or not an injustice has occurred and what we then do about it can't really be based on or framed within that sort of discussion of the counterfactuals you're saying. Like in other words, we have to focus on what happened actually and deal with that and see if in what happened, there's an injustice and that's where the discussion comes from and so on and so forth. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that, that the way that we want to frame any of the question is probably better to not get bogged down in these metaphysical questions about counterfactuals. Right. Makes total sense. And then the second sort of non-starter thing to avoid or detour, as, as you said, that uh, you're, you're saying uh, to keep in mind that it might not be better to take, which is that, quote, the claim that privileged parties have been unjustly enriched by historic injustices. This one seems actually counterintuitive because, you know, in, you know, in sort of colloquial or common sense, people might say, well, of course, people have been in, in unjustly enriched by these injustices. Right. So, so why is this a little messy? Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons here. Uh, one of which is so. I think with a lot of other kind of liberal political economy uh, in the background, we're likely to think, for example, 
that uh, colonialism, for example, is not just morally unjust, but it's also like actually all things considered uh, not a good economic policy for the uh, parties engaged in colonialism. And in fact, um, one way of thinking about it is it's not that uh, the the injustice of colonialism is not that it made uh, the colonial empires rich, but rather that they impoverished uh, the colonized people. Um, so um, at the very least, it's a live kind of open uh, empirical question as to whether or not uh, there's really like it for people in uh, colonialist countries, whether or not they actually, like all things considered, benefited. Uh, now, it's also important to distinguish two senses of the word benefit here. One is kind of a relative benefit, which right. just means it benefits them in the sense that it makes them better off than the people who are harmed. And it seems kind of undeniable that colonialism, slavery, so on and so forth, uh, affords a relative benefit in that it obviously makes other people worse off. And so if we're like thinking of how well off people are, uh, it's going to make them better off than the people who are, who are harmed. Uh, but then there's also absolute benefits and absolute benefits is just kind of like, uh, how well off, uh, someone is all things considered, even if we're not looking at a comparison with other people, like, uh, if, yeah, like if uh, say that if we all get really sick and say that I have like better immunity and so it's just kind of like a cold for me and then you guys are in the hospital for two weeks, uh, this is in a certain sense giving me a relative benefit with respect to you guys because obviously my health is better than yours, but obviously it's a absolute harm to me because I am definitely like worse off in virtue of of even just having that minor cold. And so I don't want to don't want to say that it's an open question whether or not it cr- afforded a relative benefit to privileged parties both in the slavery case and in the colonialism case, but rather I think that slavery and colonialism for reasons that are beyond the scope of our conversation here are also just not good um are not ways of creating wealth all things considered. And so it's unlikely that you're going to have enough unjust enrichment in the absolute sense, which is what I think those kinds of arguments need to get off the ground in order to uh, get an unjust enrichment, uh, an unjust enrichment argument working. Now, it's really clear to note also, this doesn't mean that no one is not absolutely benefited. So, for example, uh, if a particular family had massive plantations and then they converted that wealth at some point into some other enterprise that uh, that exists to this day, those people in particular, they might be unjustly enriched by slavery. But in order to get kind of a massive reparations campaign, it needs to be a kind of unjust enrichment that's going to carry a lot further than just um, like very particular super elite uh, cases. So for that reason, at the very least, uh, there's reasons to be skeptical. It's an open empirical question whether or not there's enough uh, unjust enrichment in the absolute sense to get those arguments off the ground. And more than that, I think there's good reasons to be skeptical that 
slavery and colonialism are actually good economic policies. And thus, it's likely that it you might it's likely even that the average uh, person who is not a descendant of slaves is themselves worse off than they might otherwise. Oh, of course, granting the uh, uh, things we just talked about, um, that they are worse off in virtue of slavery than we than whatever the closest ver- kind of person who might be like them in the counterfactual where it doesn't exist. So probably everyone is harmed by slavery and colonialism. And so that's not a good, uh, that, that means that the unjust enrichment arguments are not a good uh, starting point. Right. So like, in other words, like you're saying it's very important to distinguish between, for example, someone saying, I don't know, I'm just making it up. Like, you know, this certain person who's white, let's say from these descendants of rich plantation owners, obviously they are relatively better off than this person over here who mm. happens to be black and they're the descendants of slaves, let's say, and, and they have their own situation. Right. So of course we say one's relatively better off than the other because of the injustice. But you're sort of saying when you scale up, if you will, yes. you know, it's, it, you, it's a, you know, the, the focus should not be to say, for instance, quote unquote, the United States, for example, is better yeah. off because of slavery and colonialism because you're saying essentially the idea is, from, at least from the libertarian perspective, for sure, that if those things had not occurred in an absolute sense, the United States, quote unquote, would have been better off, for example. Yes, exactly. That following like Smith and Mill and other authors who argue that slavery is economically destructive all around, um, it's unlikely that you're going to have enough unjust enrichment for it to go around. And again, I want to be clear. It's still allowing for the possibility of unjust enrichment for like particular like ultra elite parties, but that's not enough to really get a full scale unjust enrichment argument for reparations off the ground. Absolutely. And I'm going to move us on to uh, surveying some of the arguments that, that you essentially survey in your paper as well so we can explore mm-hmm. this further. I should say to the listener, because I'm not sure if I mentioned this as we get started, too, that, of course, in Jason's paper, he makes it clear that um, colonialism and slavery are not the only two historical injustices right. out there. But that's kind of what we're going to be spending most of our time on today. Um, so you do ultimately survey modern contributions to this. Actually, can I say just, oh, of just course, a yeah, little yeah. bit? Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think – uh, the general phenomenon for what's we're discussing here are injustices that occurred quite a long time ago and might appear to have like a lot lasting effect. And also, um, especially when those injustices are after the people in question are now dead. So, for example, uh, certain kinds of uh, particular uh, forms of segregation if those are not dealt with in some way until after all people all relevant parties are um dead uh then that would also be an instance uh, a paradigmatic instance of historic injustice and in many ways it already shares a lot of the similarities but just for the purpose of the article and to have clear examples i'm focusing on slavery and colonialism and meaning to extend that analysis outward as you said and on that note, you do survey some modern contributions to the historical injustice discussion. So I, I'd like you to actually take the listeners through that. I do think this is very interesting to see what other people are saying as well. And I, I did, and I will reiterate, I think your, your paper was very good. So I thought it was very helpful. So I want to get into that more now too. So there's one uh, within the sort of tent, as I was saying earlier, of the, the reparations discussion largely. Uh, you, you survey one argument. You, there's one, uh, you call it uh, David Boonin's compensation argument. This is actually very interesting. It's less about individual guilt and more about corporate agents like the state, for yeah. example. So why don't you talk about what he sort of frames up and his solutions? Yeah. And so 
one other kind of uh, thing that sometimes get brought up in reparations discussions uh, is someone says, well, I uh, wasn't born for like another hundred years since before, before slavery, uh, since I, I wasn't born for another hundred years since slavery was abolished. So uh, how can it be just to make me uh, make to do reparations given that? Uh, so Boonin is kind of trying to deal with that kind of argument and also worries with the counterfactual uh, argument and the uh, and the unjust enrichment. And he has a pretty uh, good case here in which he says, think of it like this. So there might not be surviving individual culprits for a lot of these historic injustices. No one that we can hold individually uh, accountable in that way. Uh, However, there are kind of surviving corporate agents. And what do I mean by a corporate agent? Just like any kind of institution that uh, takes all sorts of actions on itself, like that we can say reasonably, for example, that uh, George Washington University has existed for however long as it has existed, right? And obviously, that's not just a statement about particular individuals. It's about the uh, university. We can say they've given out endowments for however long. That's a corporate agent there. And there are definitely surviving corporate agents who are, in one sense or another, uh, responsible for slavery. So the most obvious instance of this is the state. Uh, Obviously, the state licensed and enforced Slavery, not just uh, directly, but also did all sorts of things to uphold it, such as uh, organizing fugitive slave patrols, uh, conscripting people into those fugitive slave patrols. So definitely, uh, if someone owes compensation, if someone uh, can owe compensation for slavery, and it sure seems like they should be should be able to, then a surviving corporate agent like the state uh, that has culpability in that sense uh, should, should owe corporate, sorry, should owe, um, compensation. But then there's the other, other question of, well, what about, well, how do we even say that people are harmed given the, uh, worries with the counterfactual, uh, case. And then Boonin here says, we can think about it like this. So suppose that uh, some kind of, uh, company has been putting out toxins into the air and uh, that the effects of those toxins, uh, there's a lot of direct immediate effects on those from those toxins, but then also it just kind of keeps persistently in, since it's like in the air uh, kind of causing health problems for people decades and decades down the line. It might be the case that we can't, we can't say, for example, that someone who was uh, born after the toxins were released was uh, wronged in this counterfactual sense uh, based on that particular moment that the toxins were released. But we can say that uh, since the toxins are in the air and that's kind of a a long running effect of that action of releasing the toxins uh, for which the company is responsible for the fact that it's continuing to anew cause uh, harm is something that can be culpable for, for those people. Uh, And so Boonin wants to say in the same way that when we look at kind of durable uh, racial inequality, 
that a the best explanation for that uh, is long-running effects of slavery. And so he says, uh, you can see it in kind of the same way that the uh, institution of slavery was a kind of social pollutant uh, that this corporate agent of the state was responsible for, and thus uh, it can owe compensation for the ongoing effects of uh, kind of the legacy of slavery uh, today. Uh, so again, it's this kind of like the, co- the harms that are happening now and like kind of happening anew uh, at long after the fact that uh, the corporate agent here being the state is responsible for. Right. And from your, when you put your sort of like libertarian cap on, how, how do you evaluate that argument as far as how as far as how far you think it actually takes the thought process of whether it's helpful, whether it's not? Yeah. So I kind of go back and forth personally on uh, what I think about Boone's argument, because I think it's a very good argument, regardless of whether or not I think it, it fully works. Um, and I think one thing that I personally think is just like clearly correct, and we can say talk more about this. Uh, is the point about corporate agents mm-hmm. that uh, it seems like uh, what there's all sorts of uh, problems with, like, for example, holding descendants uh, legally culpable for what their ancestors did, uh, that we don't ordinarily say that, like, uh, if your grandfather had certain debts and then he dies, then those can be passed on to you. But Um, here we don't even have to get into that kind of question because we're definitely have surviving institutional culprits. And I think Mm -hmm. that's like one of the strongest points that Boonin, uh, brings up. Uh, and of course this can be not just the state, but also, for example, I think Georgetown university, uh, held slaves. And so that would be uh, another instance of a surviving institutional culprit, though, obviously in a very different sort of scale than the state. Mm. Um, but where I think there might be a little bit more of a problem is in the kind of social pollutant argument. Uh, and basically the reason for that is, is I think we need to get really specific about the kind of harm we're talking about and the kind of um, harm that people can be owed compensation for. Right. Uh, so uh, if we go back to what I was saying on the unjust enrichment, uh, arguments and Boonin himself makes says a lot of the thing, same things that I said there be, in his rejection of the unjust enrichment arguments. Then it's very plausible. It's at least it's like an open empirical question. We might say that even the vast majority of white people in the United States, for example, um, are uh, who have no slave ancestors are themselves harmed by the social pollutant of slavery. That the United States. If slavery had never existed, it would be a whole lot better place uh, than uh, if slavery ha- had never. Yeah, it would be the sorry. The United States, if slavery had never existed, would be a whole lot better place than it is now. And that's true even for uh, pr- most privileged parties. And so, if the social pollutant argument is enough to say that someone is owed compensation, then we run into a problem because it seems like it gets the very strange conclusion. Right that even like white people who have no slave ancestors are owed reparations for slavery. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very strange conclusion that I think should give us a reason to think we need to be a little bit more specific about the harm in question. 
So to be 100% clear then, you're not – so everyone listening understands as well, following all that, you're not then saying, for instance, therefore, uh, for example, reparations or rectifying the injustice is just – it shouldn't be considered. You're saying that the argument itself – Right, yes. That there's some problems with it that should really – Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I go through a lot of arguments here mm-hmm. um, and – uh, the success or failure of one argument is not the same thing as the success or failure of uh, reparations in general. Uh, when I reject the unjust enrichment argument or the counterfactual argument or Boonin's argument, that does not mean a rejection of reparations. Yeah. And, and, and just to round that up before we go break uh, the Boonin's argument one specifically. So it, the idea of that, that sort of corporate agency part, definitely like that's convincing to you. You, you do think, you know, for example, if, you know, eight yes. managers at a corporation wrong my grandfather or something, and then all the managers die, then years later I'm here claiming reparations. Most people don't turn around and say, I have no claim against the corporation. So you're saying that's pretty right. solid. Yeah. It's just that yeah, it's yeah. the pollutant one that you're saying we might have to look into a little more. Yeah, I will say briefly that sometimes people raise worries for this in reference to the state. They say, sure, that works for a company. Sure, it works for Georgetown University. Mm. But of course, the state gets its resources through taxation. So uh, when you're making the state liable for something, you're really making taxpayers liable. Right. Uh, but I don't think this quite works uh, even uh, if we assume kind of a radical libertarianism that is uh, – is upset with taxation in general. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't accept that kind of radical libertarianism, then just like whatever argument for why you think taxation is legitimate in the first place would be a reason that this that this can also work. Um, but uh, if even if the state is uh, wrong in taxing people, which incidentally I do think it is, um, then it's still the case that the state still that doesn't mean that the state doesn't owe. Uh, people a compensation. For example, if someone is wrongfully imprisoned, it is very likely that that they can be, the state can be sued uh, and that the state can be sued in order and forced to pay that person damages. And there doesn't seem like anything wrong with that. Uh, And so similarly, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong for the state having to pay uh, its debts of reparations. Right. Yeah, it seems to me here that like the, the anarchist, for example, has an easier time with that because basically at that point, it's just tactical, right? The answer is yes, the right. taxation is unju- unjust. Yes, everything else is unjust. If tactically speaking, we can get, for instance, some reparations along the way, great. Whereas like someone yes. like the minarchist might have more of a problem with this if they reject the idea of reparations because then they then have to sort of justify why someone being you know born under the state, for example, in a democratic process or whatever you want to call it, why that's just and why those things can carry through but not right, right. the injustices. So it seems like the anarchist has an easier time on that one at least. Right, right. And you know what? Actually, that's a great time to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Lee Bias today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Amy Willis, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Lee Bias today. So, Jason, I think our first half was great. We talked about some non-starters for the, from the libertarian perspective, if you will, when it comes to the reparations debate. 
We also surveyed a couple different things, including David Boonin's uh, compensation argument and continuing sort of our tour uh, within that reparations discussion. Your paper also touches on uh, you have uh, three, it sees, according to my notes, Bernard Boxel, George Scher, and Andrew I. Cohen. They have an approach mm-hmm. that you, of course, na- naturally then title the Boxel Scher Cohen argument. It's just like the Boonin thing. Can you take us through that? Give us your thoughts on it and what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. I will should say for uh, full disclosure that Andrew I. Cohen was my master's thesis uh, co-advisor. Um, and he has a paper where he refers to this as the Boxel share argument. And so here I'm referring to it as the Boxel share Cohen argument since he builds on it and develops it. Mm. Um, and, uh, so, and now, uh, Boxel and share are not themselves libertarians, but they're using kind of an explicitly Lockean argument and Cohen is a libertarian. So I feel it's worth putting in this, uh, in this, uh, chapter, and the basic argument says, okay, so we do need to get more specific about the kind of harm being compensated for, because uh, we don't want it to be the counterfactual kind of harm uh, in question. And then uh, you might also have worries with uh, Budin's kind of social pollutant argument. Uh, and the argument they have here has to do with uh, kind of what parents owe their children. Uh, and so the thought is, so when the state in pot, when someone impoverishes someone else, it would say that that person has a child, they're not only harming the parent, obviously they're also harming the child because that's where the child is going to get its, uh, any of resources that it has obviously, uh, is from the parent. And so not only you might say, has the parent been wronged, but also the child, and thus so too might the child be entitled to compensation. Uh, And the thought here is that we can use that basic thought and go kind of a long uh, line from the original direct victims down to uh, their ancestors by saying, okay, so uh, this, this slavery or colonialism, whatever, uh, has impoverished this uh, first initial direct victim who was then less able to provide for their child than they would have been otherwise. Um, and then that, since that injustice is not rectified, and that's here's the important part, is that since the injustice is not rectified, that is itself an injustice against the child who then is themselves going to have a child. Uh, and the fact that that injustice is not rectified for their, for this grandson's uh, grandson or granddaughter's uh, uh, parent uh, means that uh, that chi- that's new child is also not going to be as well off as they could otherwise be. And so on and so on and so on and so on. And notice that since this is, talking about an injustice that definitely exists at the time of the child's birth. Uh, in, in, in particular, the fact that the injustice has not been rectified is an ongoing injustice. Um, then that means that there is an injustice at the time that each uh, child in the step of this process is born. And thus um, this kind of evades the counterfact, the, non-identity problem with the counterfactual argument since it's talking about 
something that has actually wronged this particular person. In particular, the fact that that injustice has not yet been rectified. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way that this is sometimes objected to is what uh, Cohen calls the voluntarist uh, objection. At least that's what uh, Andrew I. Cohen calls it. And this basically says, oh, well, look, like uh, a uh, there's all sorts of things that uh, the, parent, the, the reparations recipient might have spent money on. And not necessarily the case that it would have gone to the child. Uh, so, uh, therefore, we can't say uh, necessarily that the child uh, is being deprived of something when their parent is being deprived of the reparations payment, since the, the parents might spend it on something else. And Cohen says we can patch that argument by uh, the, with the premise that, well... Uh, parents have kind of a natural duty to provide for their child. It's not really up to them morally that they morally um, uh, in a legally enforceable way must provide for the child that obviously this is the basis behind any kind of laws about child neglect. Um, So to some extent, it's not up to the parent how to spend some of the reparations money that it needs to go towards, um, towards, uh, the, towards the child. Uh, and you might have worries about whether or not um, uh, parents do, in fact, uh, have these natural duties, like natural legally enforceable duties to their child. Uh, Cohen says um, that, yeah, if you deny that, then the argument doesn't go through, but it's pretty hard to deny that uh, because, of course, that would require us to say that uh, the uh, the, that a parent can just starve their child to death passively. Um, so that's so that's uh, goes out, I think. And then he says further um, that uh, he says further that it's probably not just the bare survival that the parent owes the child, because uh, you might also say, well, look, the parent owes the child keeping them alive, and obviously, if current claimants are alive, that's been satisfied. Um, but he says not quite because then you could imagine very horrible circumstances in which the child is still technically alive. Uh, so instead we need to have, think of it as some kind of like providing for some, uh, level of functioning. So I think most of the argument is, works really, really well. I, the one problem that I kind of, uh, have with it is it gets some kind of weird, uh, weird upshots namely that suppose that there's two people john and jane both who are descended from slaves it, the only real difference between them is that uh john's family has been per- persistently in poverty whereas jane's family uh by contrast they had a brief moment where um let's say uh their family uh, was won the lottery. Uh, their uh, they were successful lawyers. Something that uh, made it the case that they were very wealthy for a brief amount of time, uh, and then uh, through and then the, and then at that point uh, they have a child while they are still wealthy. Right, um, and then they lose all their money from some other other way. Uh, then it seems like 
the thing that that it's we would attribute the failure to fully provide for the child uh, with can't be the slavery uh, since that while when the child was born there was no failure to provide for the child that needed that that was an injustice to the child right mm-hmm. in other words you uh, don't have like an unbroken chain of exactly injustice. so there's there's other ways that we might worry about there being an unbroken line mm-hmm. uh, one way that Cohen and uh, Boxel uh, both point to that this might be patched, uh, or at least that they say that there might be an addition to this kind of uh, succession of uh, deprivations is inheritance, uh, inheritance of the initial claim, which is itself kind of an independent argument for reparations. We could talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get into that then, because I was going to prompt you on, on the inheritance argument. So why don't we? shift gears right into that. Yeah. So I think this one is actually my favorite um, of the arguments for reparations. Cause this one I think is just honestly like very airtight. Uh, so here the base, the basic thought is that um, so obviously the slave themselves or the person who was enslaved that they are owed reparations. Um, and then those reparations aren't paid. Um, and then the slave dies, or the, the person who was enslaved dies, and then their child um, is is likely to inherit all sorts of other things that belonged to uh, that person. Uh, one of those things that they might have passed on to their child is uh, the the payment for the reparations. Mm. And since that that ra- then since that uh, payment was never actually given. Instead of actually getting the payment, they get the kind of the moral title to that payment. They own the debt in the same way that um, you can pass on uh, the ownership of some, any other debt to another person. Uh, so and it's really important to note here, this is not a, a counterfactual claim. It is saying factually that the even though they didn't actually like say in their will that if we were ever to get reparations i would give them to my child rather it's that their the child is the presumed heir mm-hmm. of the uh the person who is owed reparations and so that debt passes on to them right in the same way that many things pass on naturally if someone exactly. dies, dies without a will for example yes yes and so i think that this is just a pretty like straightforward um, argument that's really hard to find fault with, uh, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and notice it's not claiming uh, that there's counterfactual harm to the descendants. It's not claiming there's social pollutant harm. It really doesn't even rely on the deprivation harm. It's not relying on any harm at all to present claimants. It's only relying on uh, the original harm to the person to the person who actually suffered the initial injustice. And uh, kind of any other kind of way we might think about inheritance in general. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is really strong. Um, There are people who would want to who want to push back on this. So, for example, uh, Tyler Cowen uh, argues that we might have worries about whether or not uh, restitution debt can be like a heritable form of property. So. For example, uh, we have in just ordinary tort cases, uh, we have uh, statutes of limitations on collecting the debt. Mm -hmm. And obviously, 
200 years is, is within the statute of limitations most of the time. So Cowan uh, says, for that reason, uh, we should be skeptical about, about that and, and also about whether or not about, on the uh, kind of statute of limitations of the collection of the debt. And then also on whether or not it even makes sense to say that restitution debt can be uh, can be passed uh, passed down if that's the kind of debt that can be uh, heritable. And I think there's reasons to uh, think that this kind of objection doesn't work on either count. So first of all, um, it's worth noting that. It's not just that the debt hasn't been collected. It's that there was no opportunity to collect the debt, mm. right? Um, it's not like the, uh, the, and the descendants of the slave um, all throughout this time could have come to collect the reparations and they just never did it. Right. Then I think the, the, the statute of limitations point might work. But when it's kind of being forcibly kept back from them, it's not as plausible. Right. They didn't waive then, it explicitly, which happens yes. sometimes in some tort case, but that's a whole different thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Exactly. And then on the the whether or not restitution can be a heritable form of property, I think it's worth noting that uh, uh, since this is in the context of discussion about libertarianism, that a lot of rad- radical libertarians uh, in very different contexts do think that restitution debt should be a heritable form of property. And I think one way to interpret that kind of uh, bucking of existing precedent and saying that restitution debt should be a heritable form of property is just to look at like wrongful death cases. So wrongful death cases are uh, ones in which it's, it's not the criminal murder suit. Not, it's not suit, I guess. Not the criminal murder trial, mm. but it's a suit uh, against the person responsible for someone being dead to pay the kind of heirs of that uh, victim. Mm-hmm. Now, presumably, if anyone is owed restitution here, it's the it's the person who actually suffered the wrong. In other words, the person who was killed. Mm. But obviously, that person can't collect. And so, one way of interpreting wrongful death suits is that it's inheriting the restitution owed actually to the person who was killed. Mm-hmm. And so, we might say similarly that uh, this might be a reason to think that restitution debts can, in fact, uh, be legitimately uh, passed down. So of all, and just to reiterate with something you said at the front end, before I, I move us on to a couple follow-ups, you're basically saying of all three arguments we sort of discussed in the survey today, this is the one uh, you think is the most convincing and strong, but should I go as far yes. as to say the one that you would quote side with or where, where do you personally I would, stand I would that? say that I, I side with it. I go back and forth on exactly what I think about uh, the Boxel Share Cohen argument, exactly what I think about the Boonin uh, kind of social pollutant compensation argument. Um, but generally speaking, I don't think that those o- other arguments can go quite all the way that Boonin or Boxel Share and Cohen want them to go. Mm. Whereas I do think that uh, that the inheritance arguments just gets you a very straightforward claim that people who are the inheritors who are the descendants of people who uh, suffered initial injustices in these cases of historic injustice that they are owed reparations. Mm-hmm. One, one last thing I want to say about uh, the inheritance claims, because I think it's kind of an interesting feature of them. 
is that sometimes you get these kind of attempts at like reductio ad absurdum of reparations where they say, oh, well, what about all the people who were slaves in the Roman Empire? Are we going to go back and fix that? Or the colonialism in that case? And even if we could get like a surviving institutional culprit for cases that go that far back, or we could even go even further back into like ancient Egypt or something Mm -hmm. like that, then... And even if we could assess who are the actual descendants of the victims in those cases, notice that the it's not like, um, though the Boxwell Share Cohen argument might say that then new descendants have like a new claim into themselves. But in this inheritance argument, it's not a new claim, right? It's right. the claim that was owed to uh, the initial victim. And then that is passed down. And if it's passed down to, for example, multiple children, that claim is going to divide. And if you start with something in like the ancient Egypt, whatever existing uh, inheritance is owed to a current descendant of, of someone who suffered those initial injustices is going to be so infinitesimal that it just mm. doesn't even matter. Whereas you do not get that same conclusion, notably, in comparably significantly much more recent injustices like uh in the case of american slavery or colonialism Mm -hmm. that um the injustice was so grave that the claim itself would be pretty massive Mm -hmm. and then we haven't had nearly the same amount of time for the claim to divide Mm -hmm. and so i i think one helpful thing about the inheritance argument is that it also kind of sidestep uh sidesteps this kind of like objection that you hear in a lot of everyday discourse about reparations right Right. That makes total sense. Or to take a, a, a newer, because you're saying, of course, the closer the timeline, the, the weaker that argument about the distance is like if you take a newer injustice, for instance, like the war on drugs, right? As we right. had more years into the future, that is quite literally becoming a historic injustice. Exactly. That's terrible yes. too, right? Right, right. And uh, as our time's winding down here, I know I, I don't want to rush it along. This topic's very fascinating, but I want to get one more uh, general point in before we, we conclude yeah. a little formally. Um, so I, I said at the very beginning that, you know, a, a lot of your paper focused on like reparations per se. And then towards the end, mm-hmm. you talk about uh, an, another sort of uh, rectifying historic injustices type of conversation, which has less to do with reparations and more about land and rightful owners. Yeah. So I know it's I, and of, of course, those listening should really know, of course, it's unfair for me to put Jason on the spot and basically say, do all this in like five minutes. But um, I just want to kind of throw it at you to get your general thoughts on it. And then if you could at least trace it a high level. So, you know, this is the idea that you know, whether land connected to historic injustice can be rightfully returned to people and, and properly returned, you know, and you said libertarians seem right, to have right. different degrees on uh, and ideas on this discussion. Now, you know, on the one hand, there's more extreme ones, uh, you know, other, and others worry about the practical effect, others more principles. Why don't you just tour us through some general thoughts of yours on this idea, or at least a couple different approaches you've read about just to put them on the table. Right. So um, there's, so one way that uh so a lot of libertarians will kind of acknowledge that there's that some kind of uh any kind of principles of property that we have are going to require some kind of principle rectification so nozick uh basically says that and then that's really all he says about it that you need some kind of principle rectification he doesn't really say much about what that looks like Mm. um by contrast, uh, one person who does have some well-sketched out uh, principles of rectification is actually Murray Rothbard. Uh, so in Ethics of Liberty, 
he basically uh, says that uh, with unjustly taken property, there's kind of a few different possibilities. It could be that we that we know uh, that it's currently in the hands of the person who stole it, and uh, that the we still can get a hold of the the original victim. Uh, if that's the case, then you just give it back to the original victim mm. or or whoever is entitled to it, right? Um, or it could be the case that it's uh, we know who's we know who uh, that it's still in the hands of the person who committed the initial wrong, and uh, the uh, but and we don't have the original victim on hand. Then he wants to say, and or anyone who would like plausibly have title to it. Then he wants to say that in that case, then it's just kind of morally unowned and that it could just be taken by someone else since uh, that the only title that the thief has to it is the, the theft and that doesn't get you legitimate property acquisition. Or he, wa- he could say it might be a case where um, we... The, the property is in the hands of someone other than the thief. They've sold it, something like that. And, but we also know how, who the original victim was. Hmm. And we have them on hand. And then he says that the current blameless owner does need to hand it over to the victim. But um, so too is the blameless owner owed, rep- owed restitution from the uh, original thief. And all that... I think takes care of a lot of uh, land cases, except that there might be cases where things are so uh, warped and so um, uh, kind of bloodied by historic injustice right. that um, it's, and say that the property has undergone massive transformations that you can't really just give back the property because it's just something fundamentally different at mm-hmm. this point. Um, and I say a lot about this in the paper, but I'm, I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Um, and I encourage people to look at the paper. Um, but in those kinds of cases, and this is what I think of as like the poisoning problem, because it says that maybe this means that you just, that trying to do libertarianism just can't even like Lockean libertarianism just can't even work. Mm-hmm. Uh, given all the injustice that's occurred, um, in that sort of a case, um, I think um, first we we can appeal to those principles that, that I just outlined from Rothbard a bit, so that um, that if the the person who's actually entitled to it and uh, the original thief are kind of no longer in the picture, um, then it's just kind of gone back into unowned property, and now whoever has it just has it. Um, but, um, in those cases, um, where, for example, we, we do have a surviving, uh, person who is entitled to the land, but it's been like radically changed in such a way that, uh, it's now not, it can't just be handed back over to them. Mm -hmm. Um, John Simmons has an interesting idea. Uh, which is that your kind of historical rights, as in your rights to things uh, in terms of rectification, are not to the particular share, as in the particular thing that was taken from you, nor is it a uh, share of wealth, uh, nor is it to 
just a general share of wealth, but rather to a particularized share. In other words, you try to match, uh, the, you try to approximate uh, the thing that the person is owed as best as you can. So for example, if uh, something was some hunting grounds and it's now has been converted to a bunch of strip malls, so it can't really be returned as hunting grounds, uh, that would be an example of something that like can't be returned as is. Right. And so in that case, you can return what you can return of the land uh, and then also pay them reparations, um, like monetary compensation, well over and above that for the uh, harm uh, that is uh, of the land being transformed kind of against their will. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of the gist of, I think, a combination of those principles of rectification from Rothbard and Simmons's idea of the particularized shares gets us in some direction towards uh, dealing with this uh, poisoning problem, which, um, again, the idea is that so much injustice has occurred that it doesn't even make sense to talk about reparations. It just kind of like uh, that there that all land is is forever tainted morally and that we just can't have like a natural rights theory of property. I think those things go some way towards answering that worry. Right. And in another way too, it sounds like as well, if one tactically or practically just for the sake of argument does accept, you can pivot from just the land itself to reparations or monetary value that can connect nicely back up to the inheritance discussion too. Because right, at right. the end of the day, you know, if someone, if A, if B stole land from A and then sold it to C and then so on and so forth down to person Z, it might be, as you or the property changes or whatever, as you said, lots happens in between there. It's hard to really talk about whether or not the land can be cleanly given back to someone itself, but whether you know the person that inherited sort of uh, that in- injustice, if you will, is still, uh, if you will, deserve it of something that doesn't seem to be fall down, even if you can't unentwine all the you know property mess, basically. Exactly. And um, I'm going to end on two points here, and then we'll go to our formal wrap up which is that at the end of your paper, you sort of talk about two areas where libertarian discourse has been sparse on rectifying historic injustices. Right. And you split this in two. The fir- we'll talk about two, uh, both both briefly, but I'll start with the first one. So you say one area, sparse, we could have a little more discussion on it, especially in libertarian circles. The idea of broader notions of reparations beyond material rectification. Can you explain right. a bit more about that? Yeah, so when wrongdoing occurs there's like one the kind of material harm that is done to somebody like the property is taken or damaged so on and so forth but then there's also kind of like uh the disrespect that is given to someone and the kind of the way that they are kind of lessened in social standing in some sense um and a lot of the work in the kind of outside of libertarianism uh literature on reparations is trying to think of that kind of like moral injury of uh, these historic injustices and what reparations for that would look like. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of work on that in libertarian circles. However, two places that have are, um, so uh, Jacob Levy in his multiculturalism of fear uh, says a good deal about kind of like, kind of, uh, the dignity harming aspects of uh, of uh, kind of uh, longstanding 
features of colonialism and what it looks like to rectify those things. And then also Andrew I. Cohen, uh, who I mentioned earlier, um, has a recent book on apologies um, and what uh, state apologies uh, might look like and what uh, the work that those can do towards rectifying uh, and the, the kind of like broader non-material aspect of just injustice. And I think it's important to think in terms of apologies that apologies only make sense uh, when it's backed up by like some kind of corresponding action. So obviously if I just say, yeah, that was really bad. What happened? We might see that as just kind of like cheap talk if it's not backed up by something else. So that's Mm -hmm. another aspect um, of that discussion that's worth talking about. And uh, one last thing on the, on the kind of broader notion of moral repair that's interesting is I've been saying a lot about the descendants of slaves um, and obviously the inheritance claim that requires them being descendants of slaves. Um, whereas something like, for example, Boonin's social pollutant argument doesn't require someone to be like the descendant of a slave. If someone is, um, for example, a black immigrant or the children of black immigrants in the United States, they're still going to be affected by the kind of long running uh, effects of slavery. Um, and my problem with Boonin's compensation argument is that it overgenerates if we're interpreting it as kind of like a material harm thing. But it, I don't think it quite generates in the same, overgenerates in the same way if we're thinking about it in terms of moral injury. Uh, so it's probably, it's, I, I think it's probably the case that everyone, even white Americans who are, have no slave ancestors, are materially worse off than a world without slavery. But it's not the case that everyone uh, is personally kind of suffering the same moral injury or loss of uh, social standing. Like, like the effects of systemic racism that we might think of as kind of like uh, downstream of uh, certain things like slavery and colonialism, those don't affect everyone equally. And so the moral repair aspect of something like Boonin's compensation argument, like an analogous argument there, mm-hmm. I think would work. And so it would extend beyond just the descendants of slaves. Makes sense. And then the other area where, as you were saying, libertarian discourse has been sparse is on the idea of transitional justice. Can you explain that one? Yeah. So uh, transitional justice is the idea that – So you have all these sorts of cases of places that are going from a transition from one kind of government to another or kind of ending after a long like civil war or dealing with kind of genocide in their midst. So uh, post-genocide Rwanda, like uh, South Africa at the end of apartheid, um, all the kind of old communist countries at the, the fall of communism, so on and so forth. You might think that there's kind of like special considerations of justice or that justice uh, applies differently given like there's special circumstances where a lot of like the legal things that we rely on to say, for example, who is liable for something or or other, uh, that those things are in flux. Similarly, we might have to kind of uh, accommodate a lot of things and not seize on the full uh, 
uh, full uh, full aspect of what someone is owed be given that we're trying to uh, not to not disrupt a delicate situation uh, in the transition from, for example, dictatorship to democracy. Uh, we don't want a new democracy to fall into a new kind of dictatorship. Those sorts of things are often those kind of questions about transitional justice uh, are often talked about alongside questions about reparations. So, for example, uh, Colleen Murphy has a book called The Conceptual Foundations of Transitional Justice. It's great. Highly recommended a lot to think about there. But there's not been a lot of work on this from libertarians. And I think it's especially interesting, given, for example, uh, that uh, uh, radical libertarians, for example, want kind of much more seismic transitions than just the transition from democracy from dictatorship to democracy uh some of us might not even want there to be a state at all right and that's quite a dramatic transition and so i think it's worth thinking about i don't have a lot to say myself but i think it's worth thing that libertarians should think more about this question of transitional justice mm-hmm. yeah even if we don't have all the answers i mean it's important to understand the questions for sure exactly absolutely so, so Jason, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. You know, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to, you know, bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you officially, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how we should deal with historic injustice? In other words, if you wanted someone to only take away one or two or just a few things in everything we talked about, if anything, what would that be? Yeah, so one thing is something we didn't talk about as much, but we did touch on briefly, which is I would encourage people to look at the land section of the paper because I think the what I was calling the poisoning problem is kind of underappreciated by a lot of uh, kind of libertarians with like a Lockean um, perspective like mine, um, that even if you're willing to say, yeah, people are owed reparations, there's st- it's still worth thinking about the question of historic injustice and how that should, uh, beyond just the question of reparations itself, and thinking about how we apply uh, these principles of justice in a world with so much, so many violations of it. Um, so I would encourage people to look at that part of the paper. But I think at a broader level on taking away from this particular conversation I might say that just because a particular kind of argument uh, doesn't work uh, for something doesn't mean that the policy itself uh, is mistaken. And that sometimes for very simple reasons, we can have a very kind of radical, um, very radical uh, policy conclusion. So for example, I think it's pretty straightforward, the idea that uh, someone is owed compensation if they are enslaved. And then I think it's pretty straightforward to think that uh, debts, that that the ownership of a debt can pass on from one person to another person. And with those two simple ideas, you can get a very radical claim in support of reparations. So it's important to really think through um, what seem like very simple principles in our everyday lives and to see kind of the radical conclusions that we can get from that. And also to think about like, just because there are certain popular arguments for something 
um, doesn't mean that the policy itself is mistaken, I guess would be the kind of the two of the big takeaways I would want to have here. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Jason Lee Bias, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.